When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, and welcome to Soccer Made in Portland on OregonLive.com and Stumptown Footy. My name is Chris Rafer, and joining me, as always, the Timbers and Thorns beat writer for the Oregonian and OregonLive.com, Jamie B. Goldberg, and I sh- I, I, it, is, it is my great pleasure uh, to welcome to, to the show in a full-time capacity now uh the, the the you know him from from not only uh timbers.com and covering the timbers and thorns uh there uh also at the equalizer uh it is richard farley richard welcome to the show you're you're gonna be uh you're gonna be taking taking my spot uh here in you know an hour or so uh richard jamie how, how are you guys doing today well i'm i'm doing great yeah i'm like sad and excited uh, there's there's just a lot of emotions going on right now. Um, but you're in a glass case of emotion. Yes, right now. it's I don't know how to deal with it. <laughs> I I think you should be like eighty percent excited, uh, twenty, like maybe not even twenty percent sad. Uh, honestly, when I heard this, I like when, when I heard the the news that this was going to happen, I was like, oh, that's an upgrade. Uh, that's a, that's a huge upgrade. Uh, you just you you just brought in Donovan Ricketts to my H. Troy Perkins. So uh, well done, Jamie, and welcome, Richard. Uh, Richard, what do you what are your thoughts on joining the show? My thoughts are it must not be that big of news because if it was, Jamie B. Goldberg would have broken it. And I mean, Jamie says she was what eighty percent sad, twenty percent excited. I those think were, she those were my percentages, but you can run with them. I think that she should probably be. Twenty percent sad and eighty percent scared. Eighty really. percent <laughs> scared. Well, Richard, unfortunately, we know you all too well, uh, so nobody is scared uh, because, yeah, we're we're confident that it, that it is going to be uh, outstanding or hilarious, and sometimes both. Um, okay, hey, let's talk about soccer. What do you say? Uh, Timbers two, LAFC one. That was a game that happened on Saturday afternoon, uh, starting at noon, early kickoff. Uh, our predictions that only Jamie and, and, and myself, of course. But Richard, you're going to be on on uh, on duty for giving out points here. We have a neutral point giver for the first time ever, which kind of ruins uh, the segment. But I'll I'll do my best to be <laughs> equally ridiculous. Okay, that's excellent. Uh, so I predicted a one-one draw uh, with a Christian Paredes goal. Um, Jamie, you predicted a two-one Timbers win. Nice job on the result and the score uh, with Diego Valeri goal and assist. Richard, what do you say? Well, definitely the spirit of the game. I think Jamie's scoreline indicates that she was a little bit more willing to see that the Timbers were going to prevail in this one. Brave, <laughs> that was brave of her, considering the two teams' records and form coming into the game. Uh, even though the Timbers were riding quite the winning streak, I think LAFC had been very convincing. But she got the Paredes goal, which has historic value and hopefully will be the first of many for the young Paraguayan midfielder. So I'm going to award Jamie... 4.1 points and Chris you get 4.2 points because you're going away I know this is the upset she actually got the win but I the, got the goal, score line right not just the did. win 
You're right. You're right. But oh, the Perennial goal was actually much more difficult to predict than the final. Oh score. man, I just that's what I'm talking this. about. That's oh, what I'm talking wow. about. Okay, right, Jamie, go, go ahead and, and, and you know air your grievances. <laughs> I Jamie, I was this. told that I was a neutral and objective scorer. <laughs> I, I, I I'm shocked. I might have to I might have to get a new podcast host. But I don't know what, what a mistake I've made. No, um, this is like I, I correctly about predicted that a 20 year old central midfielder would score his first. MLS goal. Yeah, but I got the scoreline and the win correct. I oh. and I tried to give you credit by giving you a, a nice positive all number right. uh-huh. right. <laughs> wow. with some significant I, digits love there too. So I'm I'm particularly excited for the future of soccer made in Portland point scoring with negative points, as you just indicated that there may be. Um, that's that's going to be a good time as as I transition into being a listener. Um, okay, so I you know let, let, let's move along to the substance of the game. Uh, the first question is the one that's been sort of on the minds of lots of people, both in Portland and nationally, over the course of the last few days. And that's, a, you know, is this a statement win for the Timbers? Should they now be considered among the MLS elite or, like, at least the uh, the MLS, like, sub-elite, like, one level below the elite? Jamie Goldberg, what do you say about that? Yeah, I, I think this is what we were talking about on the pod a little bit last week, that if they are able to beat LAFC, this is the game that should they should start getting a little bit more credit. So... Maybe not the elite. Maybe they're not there yet. They're still just in third place in the Western Conference. But certainly, I think at this point, the sub-elite. And I also just think the national media needs to be talking a bit more about the Timbers at this point. I mean, five wins in a row, club record. And they in that stretch, while you might say, oh, San Jose, Seattle, uh, teams that Minnesota, teams that aren't doing quite as well. But they've also beaten two really good teams in New York, NYCFC, and now LAFC. And so if the Timbers aren't getting credit yet, I just don't think that's fair. Yeah, I mean, five wins in a row, five wins in a row is, is not an accident, especially with the quality of the wins uh, the, the, that they've had. Richard, I mean, do you see the reasons why there may be some? And, and there are a lot fewer, it seems to me, this week than there were last week. But why there may be some still sort of holding out uh, and maybe still taking a wait-and-see approach about this Timbers team? Or, or do you think that's kind of just an unviable position at this point? I think both. I think that if you were looking at this from the 10,000 foot view, you see a team that has a barely positive goal difference. You see a team that whose expected goals are relatively even. And you see a team that seems just as hot now as they were cold at the beginning of the season. Now, if you look a little bit closer, you notice that the just as hot now part is the most recent part. And there are is a lot of just anecdotal evidence to suggest, given the changes in the team and the changes in the coaching staff, that you should generally expect an upward trajectory from this team this year. So I think if you're looking at the team and thinking that a relatively even goal difference, a relatively even expected goals ratio is indicative of what this team is, you're not really reading the trend correctly. And the trend says that this team, even if it's not elite right now in MLS, and I would say that there, in my mind, there are probably three or four teams I would say are above the Timbers right now, that they have the potential to compete with those teams come the end of the season based on what we know now. You know, I'm glad you brought up the the XG thing as well because I mean, when you look at uh, the Timbers' uh, expected goals allowed over the course of the last five games, I've been looking at that mostly because I, I just want to see if sort of the what I'm seeing with the eyeball test with the Timbers' defenses is, is translating to you know kind of the the best uh, I guess chance management or or, or chance limit, limiting statistic that we have. And look, over the course of the last five games, they've had four games under. Uh, at 1.00 uh, expected goals allowed or or fewer 
I don't think that really makes sense, but I, I hope everybody got the point. I think it makes sense. Yeah, okay. And, and even the, the, the one game they had, the one, the one at San Jose where they, I think they had something like 1.2 uh, XGA for that game. The, that's all per our good friends at, uh, at uh, American Soccer Analysis, Analysis Evolved on Twitter. Um, check them out. They are an outstanding resource with tons of data. Um, but look, I mean, it, you know, it, it very much, that very much suggests to me that this is sort of, defensive renaissance that they've been having over the course of the last five games is pretty legit. I mean, look, they're not giving up goals, but more than that, the, these numbers show you, and the eyeball test very much gives you the, the same impression, that they've just not been giving up chances. And that's the key to to, to a good defense, which you know I, I think has clearly been the big thing that has changed over the course of the last five games. The, the Timbers are scoring goals. That's good. Uh, but look, the, the biggest thing is they, they've stopped bleeding them. Uh, they, they, they've started to be able to, to limit opponents. And when you're managing chances like the Timbers have, and therefore not giving up goals like the Timbers have, uh, I, I think that bears in mind to being a sort of longer term trend than just sort of a, a, a blip. So, uh, I'm very much on the, I, I would say sub elite as well. You know, I would agree with you. you know, they're, they're not there with the Atlantas, probably even the NYCFCs. Uh, on a neutral field on a normal day, uh, you, you know, or the, or the New York Red Bulls, maybe even Sporting Kansas City um, up there as well. But look, I mean, you know, you could probably name three or four teams like that. But otherwise, yeah, I, I think the Timbers could go to toe to toe with just about anybody else. Uh, Richard, you wrote about this uh, this this week, and I wanted to talk to you more about it, Jamie, you as well. But LAFC came out with five at the back, like Seattle did before them. Is this something that you think that, that we're going to see more of? Or are teams going to sort of turn the page on the, that approach against the Timbers 4-3-2-1? Bob Bradley did sort of go away from that mid-game. Gio Savarese didn't sound super surprised that he went away from it uh, mid-game when, when you talked to him in the post-game press conference. What are your impressions uh, about that as a viable plan against the Timbers? My impressions are that it's a logical plan because up until this recent run, they had really only sh- – well, I should say – I was about to say they had re- only shown that – the counterattack with Adi and Blanco and Valeri was going to be their main source of goals. So it was right for teams to make sure that they always had three back, essentially, to make sure they were never manned down against those three. But almost immediately after Chicago tried that, they started scoring goals against teams. And now, based on what we've seen against Seattle and what we've seen against LAFC, I think teams at least have to put themselves in a position to contest the midfield more. Because what we're seeing now is... The midfield trio of Polo, Paredes, and Chirad, they're actually completing more passes into the attacking third. And once you see them taking advantage of what is usually a three versus two advantage in the middle, then teams are going to have to adjust. Now, I don't know if that means keeping five at the back and playing something, you know, that still allows you a third person in midfield to um, offset the numbers. I personally thought in the Seattle game, if Clint Dempsey was just more active checking back on Diego Chirad, that Seattle would have been a lot more successful. Instead, the Timbers had that level of the field to themselves. But I think in the long term, beyond Colorado this weekend, which I'm sure will play three center backs, teams are going to have to play closer to a normal approach rather than just saying we only have to worry about the counterattack. At least if the Timbers keep progressing, that's what's got to happen. Jamie, what do you think? Do you do you think we are likely to see to see more of this, or, or do you think you know? I mean, as Richard was talking about the sort of evolution of of, of Andy Polo uh, and getting into the attack, Christian Paredes getting more comfortable, uh, Diego Char really starting to boss things in, in that three man level. Do you think that is and getting those three guys in, into the attack is going to essentially make it so that teams kind of have to go back to the drawing board on this? 
Yeah, I, I think when you look at the last two games uh, in particular, the, the Timbers controlled those games, and part of that was uh, other their opponents' approach uh, and the way they allowed um, why the way their opponents allow the Timbers to control the midfield. And so I think that's something that teams have to recognize that the Timbers that just try and defend against the counterattack is not something that's necessarily going to be effective uh, for a complete game plan. I also think that if the Timbers can if teams continue to go this route and the Timbers find that they're going to, they're having trouble with it. Gio Savaresi is going to find ways to adjust. He's shown that consistently this season that he's willing to make, even if it's not changing formation, make enough tweaks uh, tactically that you sort of use the same formation, but play it in a different way. Uh, so I, I think it's a combination. I, I think that like Richard said, it's likely we'll see uh, the same uh, five in the back, three center backs approach uh, against Colorado. But as we move forward in the season, I think that it's if this is effective, I, I think the Timbers will adjust. But I, but I think there are a lot of reasons to look at the last two games and say, yeah, that approach worked in areas. But the Timbers' ability to control the midfield, that's going to be a real problem for teams if that's the route they want to go. You know, and, and the other thing that, that strikes me with this, and I think, Richard, you talked about this a little bit in, in your piece, was that, hey, look, you know, I mean, if teams are going to do this, if they are going to drop a number out of a player, out of the attacker, out of the out of the midfield uh, and stack the, the central defense, you know, they're probably not the way the Timbers are defending. They're probably going to score zero or one goals uh, yeah. against the Timbers. And look, I mean, even if you sort of even ignore sort of the the, the additional attacking contributions are starting, to, the Timbers are starting to get from that midfield three, you're still dealing with three really good Timbers designated players in that attack that are gonna pull off at least a play in most games. Uh, and, and so I I just think in many ways I agree with you, Richard, and, and, and with you, Jamie. It's a it's a logical approach. It makes sense. I mean, you, you sort of you, when you when you set up the the magnets on the on the whiteboard or whatever like you you look at it and you're like yeah okay that, that's a logical way to go about this but i'm just not sure with the timbers personnel and with the way the timbers are defending it it really does give teams a you know very good chance uh, of of getting more than a draw uh, against the timbers in, in in most instances and i think it's going to lead to a loss more than it's going to lead to a, a win for opponents so uh, we'll see as we were talking about though one of the guys that that has really sort of made this an even more difficult approach for opponents is uh, Andy Polo, and, and in particular his performance against LAFC, where he really seemed to be not only getting comfortable in his, in, in you know, the little bit more withdrawn position that I think we anticipated him playing when he was signed, but also getting to the point where he's now feeling a little bit more freedom to get into the attack and, and feeling a little bit more comfortable coming off that line in the attack and, and, and providing some... Uh, more incisive play in the in the final third. So we got to talk about Polo. We also got to talk about Julio Cascante. And just the sort of the the first time we've seen these two sort of relatively big money TAM level signings come in and really have an impact on a game, a, a bona fide impact on a game. So they've answered some questions, uh, or at least they answered questions on, on Saturday about their acquisitions. What do you think this performance means for the for the two of them going forward? For Polo, does this mean? Uh, that that he sort of now has the that spot, whether it's on the wing opposite Blanco or in this uh, the, this three level in the Christmas tree. And for Cascante, we've got a question from Jared, and we'll just roll it in here. Uh, do you think he has laid claim to that other center back spot uh, over Bill Tuiloma in Liam Ridgeball's absence, Jamie? Yeah, I, I think with Polo, I, I think yes, uh, he for the moment has locked up that spot, but 
you got to remember, I think it's going to be maybe just one more game that he's going to be here before going to the World Cup. And, and that's going to give uh, other players an opportunity to step in that into that position. I think Polo had his best performance of the season against LAFC. And I, I think Savarese is going to continue to give him opportunities to build off that, to continue to show as he gets more comfortable what impact he can play. But But at the same time, he's not necessarily providing the goals and assists that I, I think the Timbers were hopeful to see out of him at this point. And if, you know, Savarese puts in Flores um, or makes changes during this World Cup break where, where Polo is gone and he, he gets the production he needs, there is going to be more of a competition there. But, but I certainly think the LAFC performance was a big step forward for Polo and he made a little bit of a statement with that. I think with the Gascante... Yeah, I, I think Liam Ritual goes down six minutes of that game. I, I kind of thought that might be the end for the Timbers' defense. I, given LAFC coming in, they had scored 22 goals in 10 games, one of the best attacks in MLS. Uh, but Cascante comes in his very first game at Providence Park and, and shows really, really well. He looks like he completely belongs uh, on an MLS team on the field. And in terms of him and Tuiloma, I think if Cascante plays like he did this weekend, he has the upper hand. And you look right now with Tui Loma playing for T2 tonight, I think that's an indication that we're likely going to see Cascante this weekend. And at this point with Liam out, of, we'll get into it more, but out at least two weeks, if not longer, um, I, I think it's going to be Cascante's position to lose. Richard, do you think? Do you agree that that sort of Polo has that that spot nailed down when he returns from the, from the World Cup, and similarly, uh, Cascante over, over to Ilama? I feel a little bit weird trying to predict how Giovanni Savarese is going to reintegrate both Andy Polo and Davi Guzman, just because when you look at the players that have come back from injury, or in the case of uh, Chara and Vitas, how they've come out of preseason with injuries and how they've been reincorporated back into the team. The only thing I can see as a pattern is basically caution as go taking it as slow as possible. Um, even with Liam Ridgewell, when, um, you know, he was out for that period of time. And I know there were a lot of doubts within the Timbers community as to whether his calf injury was what exactly his calf injury was. Um, there was still caution there too. So I, I really don't know what to think about Polo. I think currently, you know, as, the recent 11 suggests Polo has to be considered one of the top three midfielders on the team. When he goes away to the World Cup, Andres Flores is going to have a chance to make his case. Just as Bill Tuiloma made his case when Liam Richwell went down and Julio Cascante might have a chance to make his case. It's very difficult to preach to your team, you know, competition, work hard every day for months and months. And then when somebody does get a chance and they perform well, that you immediately just revert back to the person that was there before. I think Giovanni Savarese is going to continue to foster an atmosphere of competition. And when Polo and Guzman come back, they're going to have to compete. And I think that kind of ties into Cascante. Cascante, I agree, played well this weekend, but I also think that we maybe are grading him on a curve a little bit. Because if the goal that happened in the second half with Carlos Vela had happened with Liam Ridgewell, we would be asking, why did Liam Ridgewell come into midfield and not win the ball or do something to break up that play? And it would probably be a little bit unfair because I think there are two or three players that contributed to that goal, Cascante being one of them. But I think also that if Cascante was an established player, we would be, he would be the head of the criticism on that goal. Um, as is, I thought he played very well. I thought that he got the shift that he needed to vault himself into this four-player competition that I think is going to persist at center back. 
So I, I, I'm glad you, you made that point about Cascante because I agree that was, you know, in, in, in watching the play immediately and in rewatching it, that was the one, the one sort of the, certainly the biggest thing in defense that I was like, ah, that's not, you know, I mean the, him going into midfield, he did recover, but look, I mean, that was a big part of what sort of created the extra little bit of space in the box. But honestly, I mean, I almost feel like like that, and I agree. You can you can look at Zarek Valentin. You can look at one or two other guys and, and say, yeah, the, you know, you can potentially do one or two things different here. Yeah, definitely. On, but on, I mean, with that goal, I mean, that's eighty five or ninety percent a golasso, and you know, ten or fifteen percent defensive mistakes. I I, I mean, the, that is that oh, is yeah. the type of goal that if you give it up, and that's the one goal you give up in a game in which you otherwise defend well. As a coach, every coach would live with that. Um. And, and, and so, uh, I, you know, I, and I, I think that's basically the spirit in which you were saying that too. No. You, you weren't exactly coming down hard on, uh, on Cascante, and I, and I agree. Yeah. I thought he played well, and I think he was probably better in that game than Bill Tuiloma was. I, you know, I, I think he, it was at least as good as as Tuiloma's performance in Dallas, uh, which was sort of his signature, also his first performance, but his signature performance of the time he had in, in that spot. My guess. Uh, just, just sort of based on, uh, you know, reading the tea leaves that we've seen over the course of the last week and a half or so, uh, but also just in, in seeing that performance, I think Cascante probably has a little bit of a leg up uh, on Tuiloma right now. Um, but you know, I, as you said, that that's going to continue to be a, a competition because if he takes a step back, Bill Tuiloma proved that he is a perfectly capable guy that can step in, start MLS games, and and, and that can give you good minutes in that spot. So. Uh, so yeah, I, you know, I, I think that's a good point you made a, a, about Cascante on the the Timbers loan concession. I also think, eh, you know, and, and and about Polo, look, I I think Polo looked as close to being goal and assist dangerous, in fact, closer to being goal and assist dangerous than he has at any point with the Timbers uh, against LA. And so one chance on the left in the what was it in the first half that he yeah. basically mishits. I think to myself, that's probably the best chance that he's has. And that also reminds me of what people were saying when he was coming here from Morelia, that that's the one part of his game that he doesn't have. But the fact that he is getting to that part of his game now is encouraging. Right. And even in the second half, he was continuing to break into the box. He was continuing to be dangerous. He was doing a really impressive job of doing sort of the zone moving work for the Timbers that we got used to Darlington Nagby doing, uh, which is, I mean, in some ways it's kind of funny because I expected him to be a completely different kind of player than Nagby. And yeah. in many ways, they've kind of deployed him as, in as the same in the same kind of role uh, as, as they had Nagby. And really, LA was the first time he was LAFC. Excuse me, was the first time that he was pretty really quite effective in that role. Mm. So you know, interesting stuff. Um, okay, uh, Armadi, uh, Samuel Armateros. Have we decided is it Samuel or Samuel? Has somebody asked him about this? Because I've like seen both on videos. I. Boy, I've never heard anything but Samuel. Yeah. Really? No, there, there, there are definitely like videos of his time playing in, uh, in, in, uh, in the Netherlands, in which they're saying Samuel. Um, so wow. maybe I'm like the the lone person in the Samuel camp at this point, and 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 it's like my lonely little hill. How um, would you even spell Samuel? Like S A M W E L L? No, I think it I, phonetically. Yes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's, it's the same spelling. It's just like it, it's just a different pronunciation depending on where where, where you're from. There there are Samuels out there. I, I sure. would suspect it's actually like Samuel. Yeah, I mean maybe. <laughs> I have no idea, but the, but hey, like people who like do real things for a living. Um, by that I mean the two of you and not me. You should figure that out. 
<laughs> You've got like the best and most important job. Well, most important profession out of the three of us, and you say something like that. <laughs> anyway, uh, Armadi, uh, what, what do you think? We've now seen Armenteros come in in the last three games and make a difference as a substitute in each of the last three. Do you think uh, that means that Severese should be rethinking the way he's sort of using his strike platoon with Adi starting and, and, and Armenteros coming in uh, off the bench as sort of the counterpunch? Uh, or do you think that's a sign that the way he's using his strike platoon is working perfectly? Uh, Richard, what do you think about this one? I think anytime somebody performs well, you need to rethink where, where they are in the pecking order. Um, whether that's a starter that distances themselves a little bit more from the reserve, or it's a reserve that makes up ground on the starter. I think it's always going to be the case in the ethos that Giovanni Savaresi is trying to create, that people should be allowed to make up or put more ground between themselves and their competition. I think what's really, really interesting here, though, is that there are going to be a lot of natural calls for Samuel Armenteros to be rewarded for what he did on this weekend with a start against the Rocky with, with the, the Rapids. The, if, if you play the Rockies, the Rockies that, that, that's, that's, that's fine. fine too. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm already drifting towards baseball, which will get somebody on this podcast a little bit too excited, a little bit too early in my tenure. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk but, baseball. Although the Cubs got crushed today. 10 one was disgusting. I, I kind of think this isn't the right weekend to bring Armenteros into the team just based on the pure matchup of it. And I think that's what's so interesting. Does Giovanni Savarese reward the performance and potentially reward the effort that's going to happen in training this week? Or does he look at a Rapids team that maybe needs the strength of Adi to counter what they like to do best and start him again? Because understandably, I think there are going to be a lot of fans that want Armenteros in the eleven this weekend. Jamie Goldberg, what do you think? I mean, are, are you in favor of flipping Armadi and having Armentero start and Audi come off yeah, the bench? I mean, I think, like Richard said, it is a balance. Uh, along with having to look at, is this the right game to make that switch? He, I think Savaresi does have to look at, is this working? Because of, of seeing a different look late in games from Armenteros. Uh, is that more effective than necessarily having Armenteros in the starting lineup, which, which is a possibility. Um, that said, I, I mean, Armenteros was clear when he, when he came in, he said, I I'm here to earn that starting position and, and Savaresi says, and as we've already talked about, I, I mean, it's really important for him to reward players for doing well. And I think when you have a striker, um, that, that has probably, I mean, it has a decent ego had wants to start is gunning to get that position. I, I think at some point you do have to reward that and give Armenteros a chance in the starting lineup to show, to try to prove whether or not he can be as effective playing um, from the beginning of the game. Maybe it's not the right weekend, but I think that moment has to come soon. If not this weekend against potentially LA, because I I think Armenteros is going to feel like he deserves it at this point. And in terms of confidence, in terms of mentality, I I don't think it's the best move to just, uh, say, well, you know what, that we're going to keep it like this. And um, even though you're performing, we're not going to make a change. Man, I'm so much of two minds on this one uh, because I like, I find myself nodding along with everything that, that the two of you are saying. Uh, I also find myself thinking, you know what, maybe part of the reason why Armenteros has looked really good over the course of the last three weeks is because he is getting those opportunities to come in after Fernando Adi has been banging on center backs for, you know, 65, 70 minutes. Uh, and, and, and where they're used to a guy that, that's going to that's gonna crash into the line and try to body up to create his space. 
Uh, now they're getting a guy that's going to try to float off of now tired defenders uh, and, and get into and, and get into pockets of space. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, there is to me in, in, in one side of my brain, the, the idea that this is very much sort of the, the second coming of the Fernando Adi, Maxi or Rudy platoon di- dynamic that the Timbers had to such great effect, especially in 2014. Uh, and that Armenteros could be getting sort of the, the Rudy benefit from that. And it, as he did in 2014, when Rudy scored what something like 11 goals, uh, mostly coming in, 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 in that role. Um, on the other hand, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there are lots of good points that the two of you just made. So, Man, this one makes me glad that I'm retiring because I uh, I, I, I don't know that I, that I have now a clear, you're getting all shy, answer. huh? After years uh, well, and years of this podcast, <laughs> this this would have been a multi podcast topic under the previous <laughs> Rifer mentality, and now it's just like, eh, we'll give it to you guys. I don't care. I think I can see I, it both ways. I'm just gonna go drink yeah, beer. Um, so, a question from Michael. This one. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I think one of the things that's interesting is that there is a perception amongst a lot of fans because that because. Fernando is not putting up the numbers that he has in the past that he's underperforming. And I definitely see that case, but I like what you just said, Chris, because you reminded a lot of people that there are contributions that Fernando is, is making that maybe show up in the stats of Blanco and Valeri. And whereas in the past in the, under the previous system, especially last year when there were basically two goal scorers, they would have been in his column instead. So I think it's a very interesting to debate as to how much Fernando is actually contributing. And then once you settle that, it makes it easier to jump into the Armenteros debate. It does. And that's going to be a debate for the two of you to settle. Um, question. <laughs> so now to our question from Michael. Uh, and this is a fun one. Where do you think Armenteros running up to the capo stand rank among, among all time Timbers goal celebrations? And what are your all time uh, favorite Timbers goal celebrations? Jamin Goldberg. Uh, where does where does Armenteros rank, and, and what's your 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 number one? I, I at least thinking in the MLS era. Um, I, I mean, for me, I, I think my number one is still Audi going and grabbing the chainsaw uh, I, I, against Seattle. That I think that Audi over Armenteros. There you are. You're just yeah. laying it down right there. <laughs> Audi over Armenteros. Yeah, it means, totally means that I want Audi to start as well. Um, but yeah, no, I I. I <laughs> That's the other goal celebration for me that comes to mind immediately. I, I think there were also, I think there was another chainsaw uh, moment uh, in the pre MLS era, which I, I did not see live. Uh, the, Alan Al- Gordon, the Alan Gordon chainsaw. I felt like massacre. I shouldn't say his name, but. <laughs> you can say it. Just don't say it three times. <laughs> yeah, he, might uh, he will appear and score a late goal against the Timbers somehow. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean. So the chainsaw had already been done, but I don't even know if Audi knew that. I I still rank the Audi celebration uh, as number one for me, but it, off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of any others that uh, rank ahead of Armenteros. Richard? Well, for me, I think that Maybe it's recency bias, but I think the Blanco Chucky Man celebration like has it. to be. In this <laughs> God, it's so creepy, though. It's so no, creepy. but it's it's also it's also kind of a flavor of celebration that we've never really had, not only at this club, but really very rarely in Major League Soccer. So I kind of like that. I'm going to be weird and say that my favorite recent goal celebration is actually Diego Valeri on Samuel Armenteros' goal, where he just puts his hands behind his head and kind of just goes, whoa, what was that? The surrender cobra. Yeah. He he did it with Blanco last year, too. 
Yeah, so, I mean, you see, he just pauses, he does that, and you see in the background Samuel Arantos break off his run, go to the go to the stairs and up the stand. Uh, I find myself watching Diego's reaction more than Samuel's um, when I watch replays of that goal. So I, I would put Armenteros uh, running up onto the capo stand in, in the top five to, to sort of hit Michael's Michael's question. My all-time favorites, uh, and I'm also going to go a, a celebration from a non-goal scorer. It's a, it's a recurring celebration, uh, but it is the Diego Char golf clap. It's hilarious because, because it, it seems to only come out on like the most spectacular goals. And his, his like recognition of it is just it's just the golf clap. And you like only see it in the background of, of, of like highlights, and he'll like only ca- catch a glimpse. But man, every time I see that Diego Char golf clap, I crack up. The other one uh, of somebody who did score a goal. This is going to like very much show what my bias is uh, for goal celebrations. Mostly, I like awkward uh, and, and and funny <laughs> like in that way. I just can. I'll never be able to get over the Maxi Rudy Gumby arms after his first goal in Portland. Where he oh, just did man. this, like, I have no idea what to do with my arms kind of thing. And just, like, waved them around, uh, like, as he was running to the corner flag. This is this is pre-Archer. Uh, it, it's pre-before he, like, figured it out. It was just, it, it's basically what I would do if I scored an MLS goal. <laughs> because I was just so shocked that that happened to me in my life. Um, Where do so we yeah. put the Andres Flores attack from above? <laughs> the laceration inducing celebration the, 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 the like the like injure your 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 teammate kind of thing uh, uh, yeah the, i mean if you want to go into oregon ducks football lore that is the joey harrington um who also injured his teammate after celebrating a a field goal of all things um, but yeah, uh, no, I mean, I, that's got to be bottom five I, I I would certainly think richard i want to find a video of just troy perkins staring like, it's probably everyone, almost every one of his his teammates' goals, him just staring down the field, like five thousand yard stares if through a scope. I, I want that. That's what I want. Not bad. Not bad. Okay, it's time now for the hot take segment to be named later. Uh, and because I'm retiring, and because I'm pretty excited about this, I'm going to go first. <laughs> and and so like I was thinking about this this week, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to go out on a big note. So I've been like collecting scraps of tinfoil all week. I've fashioned myself a nice little like tinfoil hat. Uh, and I'm just going to go like all in uh, on this one. The truth is out there. But look, NWSL referees need to get over the clump of dirt and grass incident and start calling Thorns games like professionals. <laughs> this is it, it's getting ridiculous. I mean, it's getting like borderline match fixy. Uh, the, 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 the penalty this last week, the uncalled penalty, uh, on Midge purse, Andy Sullivan running, just, I mean, basically bowling over Midge purse, uh, in, in, in the box about as clear a penalty that you could see from a hundred yards, 200 yards, 300 yards. I don't care how far away from the action you are. You're going to see that. It was, was an four obvious time penalty. Zones away, Chris, and I saw it <laughs> four times. Exactly. Exactly. You were sitting all the way on the other side of the internet and you saw it. I, I mean, I just don't know how you get it. And look, you know, I mean, the ones the week before, right? I mean, they were at least close calls, right? I, I, I do think the referees got them both wrong. But look, I mean, it was, it was a kind of a close offside. So, and, and, and you know, I mean, the, the, the collision be, between Haran and Ashlyn Harris in the box, like, that's something that you do see called probably more than you should, but you do see it called. They're both close calls, even if I think there are very good arguments that they were both wrong. But the week before that, Haley Hansen jumping into Tobin Heath's ankle in Houston. Right, right. And, and, and so, I, I mean, look, 
I'm going to go ahead and say that, yeah, there is something going on here. There, This is a matter of referees. Look, we had an incident where whatever the heck happened, I still have a hard time believing the clump of dirt and grass thing, even though I want to believe that happened because it's hilarious. Um, the, 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 he gets a two game suspension. The league diminished, decreases it to one. The referees union issues a fairly, I mean, I, I, I won't say entirely unprecedented, but extremely rare, uh, statement decrying the, 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 the decrease in the suspension. And all of a sudden we've now had a string, uh, uh of calls that have even pretty obvious calls that have not gone the thorns way. They need to get over it. Uh, I mean, whatever the you know happened or or they say happened with the clump of dirt and grass incident, uh, they need to get beyond it because right now it it certainly seems to me uh, that it's affecting the way they're calling Thorns games. They need to do like they did with Al Capone's jury and swap it <laughs> with the jury in the next room, just because you have to assume it's tainted at this point. Al Capone <laughs> is just that powerful. So what we need to do, we need to find the farthest point from the United States. Let's switch referee unions with the New Zealand referee union. And Preach. Brett, Preach. Brett, that would all that would all be a bunch of um, you know, well, yeah, rugby rugby well, referees. Yeah, why don't we just let Gavin, Bill, and Jake play the games? <laughs> yeah, that would be fair. It would just—it might just swing the bias the other way. No, it I checks don't think out. I, checks right, out. I am—I'm less wearing a tinfoil hat than you. I think that the referees. Come on, that's not any fun at all. I, yeah, well, I, I might be. Should we repeat the name of the segment? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to talk Chris down a little bit. I—I uh, I think that the problem is more that the. The NWSL right referees, a lot of them just don't have a ton of experience. You're not. Are you saying I'm just get, I'm giving him too much credit? Yeah, I th- you just aren't. <laughs> where, where you're like Chris, you're assuming they're confident. This, this theory <laughs> yeah. makes I mean, sense. I don't think I'm you like get it. you get a lot of complaints about MLS referees, but I, but I think by and large, NWSL referees are the, the less experienced ones, less competent referees oh, yeah. going out there, and and I think that's the problem. I think the problem is that once a referee gets good, if they are in the NWSL, they leave immediately for international games or if, or if they have a chance to go to MLS or, or whatever it is, it's not a league that for whatever reason is desirable for referees to stay in it. And so you're getting a lot of uh, newer referees that don't really know how to handle a professional game refing some of the best women in the world. And so I, I think this speaks to a larger problem with just uh, the level of competence w- with the referees in the NWSL, not so much a tinfoil hat, uh, anti-Mark Parsons uh, uh, vendetta that they've created. It's clearly a conspiracy, <laughs> uh, but thank you for throwing cold cold water on my last hot take segment to be named later Sorry. ever. Um, because of that, because of that, I'm 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 going to ask Richard to go. <laughs> well, I was going to. Uh, I was going to say my hot take is that I shouldn't be doing this podcast, uh, but that's not actually a hot take. That's just a room temperature <laughs> take. So in the spirit of this segment in saying something that maybe you only, you only 2% actually believe, but there's still that 2%. I will say this, <laughs> that I believe that the thorns attack that we saw this weekend in Washington will, when we look back on the season from this point on be the least effective thorns attack that we see for the rest of the year. Scored one goal. Uh, they didn't have a ton of great chances in the game. They really executed on the one that they had. And I would even contend that the attack was a little bit worse than the, in the two or three previous games. I think that 
when we look back on the Washington game, we'll be looking at it like, whoa, compared to what we see now, that attack was nothing. I I can see them averaging 1.7 goals per game throughout the rest of the season. Jamie, do you want to throw cold water on, on Richard's hot take? I mean, it's an ambitious hot take, but uh, I mean, the Thorns do have the talent in the attack to, to be a much better attacking team than they've been to convert more chances than they've done so far. So I still think they have the potential. So of the of the two hot takes, I, I, there, there's less water I need to throw on Richards, I think. 2.7. 2.7. Yeah, <laughs> they're going to score 3.7 well, goals yeah. per game for the rest if of the season, If you want to keep Jamie. upping it. <laughs> how, how, what number would I have to say to have a hotter take than Chris's? Like 17. 17.6. 17.6. <laughs> They're going to average 17 and two-thirds goals. I don't believe goals. in conspiracy uh, conspiracy theory. amongst NWSL referees is equivalent to a team averaging 17.6. Okay, well, that, that's what Chris said, <laughs> not me. But but I, I don't know what, they're, what the Thorns are going to average exactly, but I, I think somewhere between one and two goals to the oh, leaning God. towards two goals isn't an unreasonable expectation for a team that is going to hopefully uh, have Heath get better and better find a way to get Haran on the ball like she was earlier this season and has Sinclair and along with that all the other attacking weapons they had I don't think that's um, yeah I, I think that's feasible I think this team should be a much better attacking team than they've been I think it's feasible too and I I guess I'm just getting I don't know if I, I don't know if I get impatient and then I try to like self-regulate that impatience or, or, or what it is but I do have these moments now where it's like well they have most of their attacking pieces back. Yeah. Uh, they, they're they're not in in great form, but they have most of their attacking pieces back. And I do sort of start to worry. I mean, I I don't know if you know. I mean, maybe this is just going to be sort of one of those seasons where the pieces just don't quite come together. Uh, they just don't fit together like, like they did the year before. Certainly, wouldn't be the first time we've seen uh, something like like that happen. And, and, and that maybe it's not going to sort of get to that point where we all expect it to be. And then I, I, I stop and I'm like, okay, well, no, hold on. I mean, you know, Dominique has only been back for... No, that's a, but that's a good instinct, I think, man. I think we got to the point where we're talking about five or six games where the attack looked good and wasn't producing commensurate numbers. So you start to think, well, maybe there's something about this team that me, that means they're underperforming their expected goals. They're underperforming their chances created. And I really mm-hmm. think it's two things. One, it is the normal variance that you have in teams that will make it seem like, you know, two or three games of data are more important than they actually are. And secondly, it has been this these bad breaks. And I think those are two different things. I think these bad breaks, whether you think it's conspiracy or not, are very <laughs> real things, which if even half of them had gone the Thorns way, the numbers would look drastically different. Now, if either of these things existed in separate worlds, we would be talking about a two or three game run that, you know, just looks a little bit abnormal. Now, when you have the the stuttering attack, then on the uh, on the heels of that, the bad calls, then all of a sudden you have a streak that's twice as long. At least that's how it works in my mind. The puzzle pieces fit. If we have another weird situation come up where it's like, oh, I can't believe that happened on the on the tails of the controversial calls, then we probably need to re-examine things then again too. So you guys are gonna are gonna keep talking about this. I'm probably gonna sit back, drink beer for a month, and then think about this conversation a month from now and be like, 
oh yeah, okay, that is how that turned out. Um, and you're going to switch your profile to an egg, and you're going to start flooding our mentions. Yes, yes indeed. I, I don't need to switch my profile to an egg to start flooding your mentions. <laughs> um, okay, Jamie, you're last. All right. <laughs> Go ahead with your, uh, with your hot take. I'm going to disappoint some listeners that wanted a soccer hot take, but I, I need to throw this in somewhere, so it's going to oh, be here. Gosh, it's going to be baseball. Um, it is not going to be baseball, don't worry. Oh, God. Um, it's going to be Giants baseball. I am, my hot take, and this is probably a hot take mostly for Chris because he's probably the one that thinks this is a hot take and everyone I feel like many people probably agree with me um is that you shouldn't leave it's I'm excited for your retirement okay wait a minute here okay (laughs) this is is getting personal not just for the podcast (laughs) more generally with Timbers coverage I, I I think that what Chris has been able to provide over the I think you've been doing this longer than me but during his time at Stumptown Footy I, I think just the tactical analysis, the just your Timbers cruise, the way you've been able to analyze the games, what you've been able to provide to readers in this community, Timbers fans that really want to get a little bit more in the weeds about with the tactical analysis, get a little bit more behind the scenes with scouting and that great article you just did. I think it's really going to be missed. I mean, there's obviously I mean, me and Richard are out here doing coverage, but I, I feel like you offered something different and your Twitter presence, which seems like it might still be there to some degree. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see that completely around. disappearing, which is nice, but <laughs> um, I just want to make sure you get the credit you deserve because, because I'm really going to miss you and I'm really going to miss your coverage. Uh, not, not, not just going to miss you because you're a friend, but because I, I think you provided something different than um, what all, uh, all us other soccer Timbers writers out there uh, were, were providing. And, you did it on your own time, which is crazy. I don't know how you did this as a hobby for so many years while also balancing a full-time job, uh, which I, I hear that you're pretty pretty good at being a, a lawyer as well. So <laughs> it's very impressive. Um, so yeah, you're, you're going to be missed. Uh, I, I wish you would stay. I, I think you should stay. I think many people would agree with that, even though I think you probably think it's a hot take. I do also think, um, and I haven't discussed with Richard, but it's just going to happen, um, that this segment, <laughs> this segment will, uh, assuming I don't convince you to come out of retirement, this segment is going to be called the uh, Chris Reifer Memorial Hot Take segment instead of the hot take segment to be named later. We finally came up with a name, or I did, um, <laughs> from now on. So, yeah, that's my mushy well, oh. hot take. <laughs> Let me chime in here and say that there are, you know, in my years of kind of doing national coverage of the leagues and the national teams, there have been just a very few number of writers that really challenge you to up your own game. Yeah. And it's always a challenge when you're writing nationally because you know that there are people in each market that know the teams way better than you do. But very few of those people are actually able to produce content that's valuable. And Chris did so in his lane better than anybody else who's been in that lane. Um, He really demanded more of both you and I, Jamie, and anybody else that has been doing this. And from that perspective, he is going to be incredibly missed, not only by us. We should miss him because we're probably going to be worse (laughs) as professionals for him being gone. But the readers obviously are going to be less served by him being gone. I will say this, though, and Chris, Chris knows this because I said this to him the first time I heard long ago that he might be retiring is that run, get the hell out of here, Chris, go live your damn life, man. Look, 
it is, I imagine, and I'll talk to you about this later on the show, I imagine it has been very rewarding for you to go on this journey, but you can't stay on this journey forever. I I want you to retire. I want you to enjoy your life. I want you to come back on the show whenever you want. And I want you to not be chained to your seat in the press box anymore. Well, I don't entirely know what to say. Uh, other than I, I, I appreciate those, those, those sentiments incredibly deeply. Um, like, you know, I mean, look, having the opportunity to work with folks like you, uh, both of you, uh, Jamie and Richard, both of whom have, you know, I mean, Richard, you talked about and both of you talked about how, you know, I, I, I challenged you all that I'm sure applies equally coming the other way, if not more so, um, you know, having smart people like the both of you doing both who can, you know, both do, you know, be be both journalists uh, can it can you know, be analysts with, with, with the, the best of anybody um, and, and can sort of do all that with the professionalism that, that the two of you do it. Um, uh, you know, it, it absolutely challenged me to up my game. Um, and so it has been, uh, you know, it, it's, it's been an unbelievable pleasure to be able to work with the, to work with you guys uh, on the podcast, uh, Jamie, uh, one episode on the podcast, Richard, although we've had you on before uh, and, and, and worked with you on, on the red card wedding as well. Um, uh, but also just, just in writing, reading your stuff, uh, it's been amazing. And, and look, you know, it's, yeah. So I'll just leave it there. I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more, a little bit later. Uh, so I'm not going to go sort of on the full Oscar speech or anything like that, but, uh, I, I very much appreciate that, Jamie, even if I am going to, you know, disappoint your hot take. You threw cold water on mine. I got to throw cold water. That's right. It's only fair. Richard did too. That was a terrible hot take. Yeah, that was a terrible hot take. It was too sentimental and too accurate. No, no, run, Chris, run. Go walk your dog down. Get out. Uh, So some folks that might not be running a whole lot uh, anytime soon. Uh, That means we're getting to the Timbers injury report. That was kind of a vicious transition to it. Uh, let's start with Liam Ridgewell. You guys are the ones that are actually in the journalism business. So I'm just going to like throw these things to you. Uh, what do we know about Ridgewell, Jamie and Richard? Yeah. Go, Jamie. Uh, yeah. He's going to be out at least two weeks. Uh, he has a right quad injury. Uh, the key part there, uh, the very key part is at least uh, what's really essentially happening is he's going to be off the field for two weeks and, and the Timbers are going to be evaluating him throughout that time. And, and at that point, we'll hopefully have a better idea of when he's going to get back. Technically, it could be right around then. But given Ridgewell's injury history, uh, given the last two years, I don't feel super confident about this one. I, I think in two weeks we'll have a better sense, but but I think this is going to be a little bit. Yeah, this is hardly the, the David Guzman 22 days. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> kind of thing, but yeah, my takeaway from from that was basically, you know, once in a while you'll have one of these non-contact injuries, uh, like, and then you'll check back in, in on it, like after the game, and then it'll be like, oh, it actually wasn't a big thing; it was a cramp that basically they were being cautious with. This isn't that. I don't think anybody thought it was that, and we now know it's not that. So, yeah, at least, at least, at least, at least two weeks. Uh, Vitas, what do we know? Yeah, I guess Vitas was on the bench for T2. I, I think he's still working his way back. I, I didn't ask Sarresi specifically about him today, but last week uh, he was saying that it was taking a little bit longer to reintegrate him. And I, I think the fact that you're still seeing him kind of around T2 is, is a sign that we're, we're not necessarily going to see him back right away. 
So here's one that's been sort of on the long-term list that we haven't just checked in on for a while. Roy Miller, have you guys seen uh, Roy around? I know I, I saw randomly on Twitter that he was over in Boise uh, <laughs> a week ago doing some stuff with the Timbers, but do we know where he is sort of in his rehab? We know he is still on the team. They didn't uh, put him on the season-ending inj- injury list. They didn't waive him, so he's still you know eligible to play at some point this season. Uh, do we know where he is in, in his rehab? Yeah, I'm... You know, I think that people have, um, when we have had open sessions, have seen that he's he is working out on the field. He has been working with actual soccer balls. Um, I wouldn't say that he's at the same stage of his rehab as Vitas or um, anybody else, but it's very clear that he is making his way back. Uh, it'll be interesting to ask uh, Coach Savaresi about him because he's been so off the radar to this point that he hasn't been part of these regular conversations. I mean, we're even forgetting players like Vitas or uh, to ask, you know, after him updating us on Guzman a couple of weeks ago, you know, where is Guzman in his progress now that he's fully healthy and you're still wanting to see some more things from him? Have you seen those things? So it'd be nice to get an update on Roy, but uh, Roy is around. He's around every day and he's working out every day. And um, he, obviously that means he's made great progress from what at his age could have been a career ending if not career defining injury to be sure and and it sounds like i mean just my inference from that is that you know i mean we were thinking that if he was going to be able to get back at all it would be sort of mid late summer ish that, that we would see him and it sounds like that's probably realistic still that, that would that's a timeline that makes sense uh with just sort of his presence and and, and working uh on soccer non-contact activities uh the other guy that, that came out with a, a a bit of a knock is christian paredes uh, we weren't sure if this was going to be an actual thing. Jamie, I know you talked to to Gio about that today. What did you find out? Yeah, uh, he said he's fine. So uh, that was a concern coming out of the game, but it, it looks like it wasn't anything to be concerned about. So Ridgewell is a thing. Uh, Vitas is kind of in purgatory. Uh, Roy Miller is working his way back, and Christian Paredes is not a thing. That's the, the TLDR version, if you will. Uh, Timbers at Colorado. That's Saturday at 6 p.m. Uh, just kidding. You don't read this podcast, so it's not TLDR. TLDL, I guess. Um, Saturday, 6 o'clock. Timbers at Colorado. Commerce City, Colorado uh, is where they will be playing. Uh, question from Curtis. Is this week's game a trap game TM? Jamie Goldberg, is this a trap game for you? Yeah, I, I think for me, this is uh, sort of, what you would define as a trap game. I think Colorado is a team that struggled a lot this year, but has been better at home than they have been on the road. And the Timbers are coming off a game where they put a lot of effort in against a very good team at home, a team that's much done much better than Colorado and were able to get the win. And so they have the opportunity to now try to extend that winning streak, but, but they can't take Colorado lightly. I mean, they have been a better team at home and anything can happen in MLS. So We'll see how the Timbers approach it, and we'll see what kind of mentality they have going to the game. But but I think when you look at trap games, this is what, what you think of. Richard? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I thought the San Jose game was a trap game, and that was on a smaller winning streak against um, after a performance that I think in hindsight looks more impressive. But um, the LAFC performance feels like it is kind of an exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Now, to extend the metaphor brutally, you kind of don't want the sentence to be over at this point. You want the winning streak to continue, but there is the temptation to, to try to move into another phase at this point. I think that the way that Colorado sets up their style of their team, it's going to be very challenging and to not fully embrace that challenge for whatever reason could prove to be a mistake. 
Yeah, I think any, anybody who goes into a game, you know, at 5,200 and whatever, however many feet are in a mile high uh, in, in Commerce City, thinking that it's going to be that, you know, I mean, they're, they're favored and this is going to be one that they can go in uh, and pretty easily get a win uh, and is foolish. <laughs> I mean, even if the, the Rapids are bad, which they are, they're, re- they're a bad team. Um, even that notwithstanding, it's never an easy game to go there. Uh, the New York Red Bulls, who I think you can make a pretty darn good argument is the best team in MLS right now, went there and, and got kind of a hard-fought 2-1 win uh, a, a couple weeks ago. And look, I mean, a, you know, a, a, if you've got teams like New York, Orla- Orlando went, went there in the middle of their like incredibly hot streak uh, and also had to sort of fight out a win. These are not easy wins to go to Colorado. And so if the Timbers don't sort of take... Geo's every game is the final uh, sort of approach to this game against Colorado. They're frankly going to get going to get beat uh, by a bad team. They're going to drop points that they can they can they can take. But look, you know, I mean, I, I actually think this is a pretty important game when you sort of zoom out to the long term. I, I, after this, the Timbers come home to the LA Galaxy. I, I think that's one that certainly the Timbers would be expecting to take three points from, given the, the, that the Galaxy are a pretty poor team, even with uh, Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Uh, but look, then after that, it's Sporting Kansas City at home. SKC is atop the West and deservedly so. Uh, Atlanta away. Yep, that's a pretty tough game. And then Seattle away. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, I mean, you look at June and, and you, you've got one game where you say, yeah, that's a game where you should get three points. The other three games are far, far, far from gimmies, even if the Sounders are struggling uh, as much as they are. That's going to be a tough game at CenturyLink Field. And so, you know, I mean, these are three important points uh, for the Timbers as they're trying to, to as you said, build on uh, the, the standing that they've given themselves uh, and get ready to go into a more difficult stretch. Then you look at the July, they've got three of four at home, and that's a lot more accessible. So if they can bank a few points here, if they can go to Colorado and get these points, that's going to make you feel a lot better about sort of subsisting through that rough stretch in, in, in June before getting through uh, to, to July when you have a, a bit more favorability. So... Uh, I, I, I agree that it's a trap game, uh, but I think when you, you not only consider the conditions, but also sort of the context uh, of the upcoming schedule, it's a pretty darn important game. Some more Timbers questions. Mason wants to know, what's going on with the left-back depth chart? Does Marco Farfan have to cover bench duty simply because Vetus is, is hurt or, as I put it, in purgatory? Richard? That's interesting. I, I guess I'm trying to get the intent behind the question is the implication tell me what you think chris is the implication here that marco shouldn't be in 18s i i think the implication is is that it is whether he's being sort of essentially forced into being in the 18 because vetus is otherwise not available that if vetus was available they'd have him on the bench and 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 farfan could be down getting regular run with t2 gotcha well i think that is a pretty fair uh assumption at least you could phrase it like this if you want to be politically correct, that Venus not being fully proven at the T2 level at this point and unable to get back to full fitness is the reason that Farfan is an obligatory part of the 18. Now, whether Marco would beat out Venus if Venus were healthy and still be part of the 18, that's a purely academic question at this point, isn't it? But I think, yes, the answer in that spirit is Farfan does have to cover because Vitas is hurt. And with Powell and... Um, Zarek, Valentin, having established themselves at the fullback positions, I think that's probably his level at this point. Not me, Chris wants to know, if you were the GM, which moves would you be looking to make in the summer transfer window? Jamie Goldberg, you've just been given a completely different job. I almost said promoted, and they're just like, that 
No, that doesn't make any sense. It's a completely <laughs> different job. Uh, you've been given the completely different job of, of Timbers general manager. What are you doing in the summer transfer window? I, I think one of the biggest things to look at at the moment is uh, whether they're going to transfer Guzman. Because uh, it's going to be really interesting coming off this World Cup, how he shows and given how Paredes has done whether that's a move they want to make. Um, and, and also, given all, how Eric Williamson has done at, at the T2 level, whether he's a guy that can move into more of an 18-type role with, with the Timbers' first team as well. So I, I don't think right now there's a clear positional upgrade that the Timbers need to make. They, they could potentially look at goalkeeper. Um, but given the way they've been performing recently, I, I don't think they feel the need to necessarily change a lot in the transfer window. We'll see how things sort of progress in the next uh, few games uh, or so. But I think one of the most interesting things right now is what's going to become of Davi Guzman and how can they maybe leverage the World Cup to, to be able to transfer him at a high point. Wow. Sure. The, the World Cup is such a pure and... Um, unadulterated event. I can't believe you're thinking about it in terms of transfer markets and things like that. I mean, what kind of level of corruption is this to bring to the world's event? Um, look, Richard's being I, sarcastic, I to, people, by the way. Just, uh, you know, just I don't want you to like lose faith in in, in, in your new co host. That the World Cup is not corrupt. That's <laughs> that, that is that is the that is like several suns hotter than my conspiracy take. <laughs> yeah, there's no amount of tinfoil that you can use to make that big of a hat. Taking the broadest view possible of this, what we're seeing in MLS is that every team needs to continue to improve. And so every transfer window, I think every team needs to go out there in the market and ask themselves, what what resources do we have? How can they be best applied? And does that improve, improve our team? We know from this winter that the Timbers did a lot to not only create, but also maintain flexibility. Um, one of, if not the team's most prominent player, went away from the team in order to create some of that flexibility. So I don't know that there's a sp- specific position that you look at and say, yes, the Timbers have to upgrade here in order to be contenders, because as we alluded to at the beginning of this show, they may very well be contenders now. That doesn't mean when players are offered to the Timbers, uh, just as they're offered to every major league soccer team, you don't look and say, does this guy help us now? Or as we've seen over on the depth chart, it's been a very concerted effort to ask, can this person help us in the next two to four years? If so, we'll add that person now. So I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and say four positions, uh, four in, in, in different set. I know it's the worst. Um, We're so, talking about the Timbers, not T two. <laughs> uh, yeah, and and I'm not saying that the, the you know hear me out because I'm not saying the Timbers need to upgrade these positions, but I think goalkeeper yeah. is probably you know close to if not at the top of uh, of the Timbers list. Uh, I think both fullback positions, so that's three, uh, but both fullback positions I, I think are opportunities to upgrade. And that's not to say that Zarek Valentin hasn't come in and done a, a respectable job. He has. He, he's done uh, a good job stabilizing that, that left back spot. Similarly, you should add, you should Elvis, add Zarek when you say this. Huh? You should add Zarek when you say that. Uh, add Zarek Valentin. You've done a respectable <laughs> job. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know I, and I think, frankly, Alice Powell has actually had a pretty good season at, at right back. Uh, thus far, he had some some bumps early on, but but overall, uh, in the last few weeks, it has looked pretty good. That said, I mean, I, I think those are two positions where you you'd sort of look at the rest of MLS starters and you'd say the Timbers aren't better than average. 
uh, at those two spots. And if you can go out and, and maybe drop a little bit of Tam and bring in a guy that's going to be a difference maker at left back, uh, that is going to be sort of a top you know, two or three or four MLS left back, I, I think you do it. Uh, and then look, the the other one that, that I think is, I think this would be purely a matter of opportunity. And it would be purely a matter of if the right guy becomes available at the right number, I would do it if I were the Timbers. And that, and that is the the wing opposite uh, uh, opposite Sebastian Blanco and going back to the four two three one if they do toward the end of the season. Uh, it's not that I don't think that Andy Polo can be a good player, but look, I mean, it it, it is entirely possible that there's going to be a, a guy, frankly, kind of like Justin Miram became available in the winter, where it's like a team, uh, you know, is going to go through a rebuild. They're looking to to fire sale, and, and there's a possibility that a guy could come available and say, "Hey, look, we can get this player who who." you know, is sort of an immediate short-term upgrade at this position, maybe even as a rental uh, just for the, for the course of the second half of the season for a stretch run, but who makes our attack immediately better. Uh, and, and so that is something that I would be on the lookout for, even if I'm a little bit skeptical, you know, the, that the odds of that coming along are much better than 10 or 15%. Uh, is that unreasonable, Richard? Or are you still scandalized by me shouting out four positions? No, I think what you've essentially done is what I think every MLS team needs to do is just Rank your starting 11 and then in inverse order of that ranking, that's, that's your needs. Whether they are needs relative to MLS or not, you have to keep improving in this league. And I think to a certain extent, even though it's hard to say this because of all the things they had to go through during the offseason and early this season, we are seeing right now how the league or the Eastern Conference has caught up to Toronto FC. And that's mostly because they put themselves in a position to compete for these last two MLS Cups where they had very little flexibility going into this offseason. So the teams that did have flexibility made their moves. They've improved and they've caught up. Now it's going to be Toronto's FC's turn to try to reestablish their, their control. But for every team, the process is the same. You always have to be moving forward because if you're not, then the teams that are moving forward are going to catch you. Can we just point out how weird the Atteche deal was for uh, for TFC? Why they went and got another central midfielder, a, a position at which they're just like preposterously stacked and have had so much success over the course of the last few seasons and did not go uh, and get another sort of starting level striker to to back up and, and, and compliment Josie Altidore? I, you are clearly unaware of the center back quality that Michael Bradley now brings to the club. <laughs> In fairness, they've had sort of a like a plague on all their center back houses. Um, but it's just like, I, I mean, is anybody surprised that, that Josie Altidore got hurt and now they don't really have, uh, you know, the, that, that Josie's had some stuff and now they don't have a striker. Yeah. Um, weird, uh, really weird off season. Like, it's not that I even think, uh, am I saying his name right? This is another, this is like one of those Spanish names that I'm just like, uh, I have no idea. Uh, Atache? Yeah. No, I thought you did, but I'm sure that's wrong. I, at least that's the last time I heard it pronounced in a game that it sounded like. I'm actually more concerned now as to whether I'm pronouncing Vanderville's name correctly, if it's a veal or a wheel. I, I think it's a veal, right? Yeah, the the W's are always, are, are always V's, both in, in, in Dutch and German, right? So yeah, I, I'm just yes. going with that anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, weird off season uh, for them. That was quite yes. the digression. Okay, let's talk about the Thorns. Speaking <laughs> from, oh no, wait. Oh, I almost skipped somebody. I'm sorry, Malcolm. Uh, Malcolm actually has a really great question. Yes. Uh, and that is who from T- T2, i.e. the true T2 roster, do you think is ready to jump to the first team? Jamie? Well, I think I think Richard, who's like was at the T2 game today, should be the first to take this one. Yeah, so the true T2 roster we're saying are people that are not on MLS contracts yeah. right now, right? Yep. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so as far as people there, I don't think that there's anybody. And largely that's because, well, I should say that Marvin Loria has looked great in the few, in his last few games, but the, the, with all these home games that T2 has had lately, the dominant part of their team has been first team players. Yeah. So we haven't actually gotten a chance to see the actual T2 players beyond, um, you know, Jimmy Mulligan, even like Josh Phillips has been relegated to the bench. Renzo Zabrano is probably the next person that you might bring up here. But even then, as Jamie alluded to, uh, Eric Williamson has probably been the best central midfielder on that team. Uh, so it's a little bit of a weird question because the, T2 is just um, so loaded this year because a lot of them aren't T2 players. And given how Giovanni Savarese is using that resource, I really don't think we're going to see that many. I mean, like players like Andre Lewis, Harold Hansen, Terrell Lowe, who were um, Augustine Williams, who were regular starters last year, Lamar Batista, are not starters right now for this team. And, and I think that says something. I, I agree that that says something. Although I do want to shout out Augustine Williams, who, when he's been on the field for T2 this year, has looked very good. He's been uh, the best and, player when he's played. Yeah, and, and and if he continues that, he should be getting a look at, at, at if he's going to be a, a guy that can bump up. Uh, I think Renzo Zambrano has, has developed a really nice partnership uh, with Eric Williamson, and 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 that has become a a strength of the team. Whereas last year it was a gaping sucking wound uh that central midfield now has become very strong as between the two of them it was a sarlacc uh, it was a sarlacc pit gaping and sucking that's a sarlacc pit okay a sarlacc pit yeah that's a that I, I don't know Sorry, what that was but i like i like how that sounds yes <laughs> chris chris's air chris's erudite metaphors are giving way to just banal <laughs> star wars references congratulations <laughs> this is your show okay here we go um yeah exactly uh and, and and then you know i mean we we i don't think we can have this conversation without at least noting the presence of Doric own vuelto who is sort of like the guy to come into this conversation once he gets healthy and 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 over the little knock that he's had so mm-hmm. um but but i i agree with you luria has, has started to look really good uh, it'll be interesting to see whether he gets any time at left back, which is where he was for Saprissa. They've been playing him as, as as more of a midfielder, and he's looked good in that spot. Um, but it would be interesting to, to be sure if he could be sort of a a richer man's Jack Barnby, um, or a okay. poor man's Rodney Wallace, or a poor man's Rodney Wallace, or even like you know a you, you, you know like upper middle class man's Rodney Wallace. Maybe he could be both Costa Rican. Maybe. Hey, it works. Maybe. Yeah, a lot of connections. Yes, indeed. Uh, Jamie, do you, do you have anything you want to add on the, on the T2 discussion before we move on to the Thorns? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you guys covered it. I, I think the players that are most exciting me at T2 are players like Eric Williamson, uh, Foster Langsdorf, players that are on the, the first team roster that you, we didn't really know if they would get any chances with the first team. Um, the T2 players that are actually on the T2 roster haven't had as many opportunities at this point. And I, I think you guys called out the players that um, of that group. Uh, that deserve mention. Yeah, Eric Williamson keeps up what he's doing. He's going to get some MLS minutes before the year is up. Uh, Thorns won. Washington Spirit, zero, uh, which is less than one, which means the Thorns won their first uh, their first win in five, six. Uh, I guess it depends on if you count this player, game. One, one word player. Yes, yes. Uh, but Allie Carpenter gets uh, her first NWSL goal uh, at the ripe young age of 18. Uh, Ana Maria Sornogorsevich gets the assist. Uh, I, I think I did get that right, uh, which I'm pretty... Really close. 
really close. You, like you were close like eight enough. or nine out of ten. It's like Sionor Gorchevich. Oh yeah, you're you're giving me like you know the yeah. The, that's like, what I'm the, saying. Yeah, you definitely. Yeah, you definitely would pass the driver's test on this. You just aren't quite a Formula One racer. That's fine. That's fine. I I only want that like the you know that that like what class C license or whatever uh, you you need to get. But in any event, one zero. The Thorns came away with the win. Ellie Carpenter with a goal. Uh, I called a one one draw with a Mallory Weber redemption goal. Uh, Jamie, you called a two two draw with an Ellie Carpenter assist. Ouch, Richard. Points. Well, you know, in terms of spirit of the game, a 1-1 with a Weber goal sure sounds very close to what we actually got. It was actually 1-0. Um, it wasn't a Weber goal, what about but the, I think it was still... What about the spirit of the side bet? Just throwing yeah. that out there. So I'm going to give Chris... And I definitely need to think about that. I'm going to give Chris 2.67 points. Uh, Jamie, 2-2. That's four goals in a three-goal game. You did pick out... Carpenter to get on the score sheet. In general, you've just been a better person, though. So I think <laughs> that's so I think, true. I think eight point one points for wow. you in the Ooh. in the spirit of hopefully you and I have a long podcasting relationship, and I did you very wrong. <laughs> that was totally unfair, game. but that's okay because Yikes. I disagreed with the first one adamantly. So I'll take. That. Yeah, you you made up for it, and, and then some. Man, Richard, you should really I, like, not bring that up after I just rigged this score for you. You had me going there. I was like, oh my gosh, he's going to... Thank you, I was like, you're going to give me the win there. You're going to give me the win. I was going to be so excited. And then you just crushed me. This is Chris's last ever podcast, or at least last podcast for a while. I threw this win to you, even though I think on the balance of both of the game predictions, like it really could have gone either way. But not only did I throw it to you, you beat him by over five points. (laughs) Disgusting. Just disgusting. This is how you send me out. Anyway, this let's is, talk about soccer. No, this is going to be the last ep- episode of Soccer Made in Portland. This relationship <laughs> between uh, B. Goldberg and myself is clearly untenable. <laughs> Reifer is going to have to persist with this show if it's going to survive. I, oh. I need to walk around my block. You guys talk about the game. i got to retire, man. Um, <laughs> I'm getting too old for this. Uh, and, yeah, I can't say the last word of that because this is a family show. Um but you know, uh, folks who have seen uh, action movies know where I was going with that. Uh, turning point. Uh, do you think this was a turning point performance for the defense? We're going to talk about the attack in just a little bit, but for the defense, do you think this was a turning point, uh, Jamie Goldberg? I think it absolutely could be. I think you look at the defense. You have a group of four players that have been on this back line for a few years now, and you look at how good this group has been in the previous years. Now with Emily Menges coming back in, she gets her first 90 minutes and they put it in a performance like this to earn the clean sheet. They don't make any glaring errors, which has been the problem uh, for so many weeks now. I think this could uh, absolutely be a turning point. I, I think they have the personnel. Um, if they play the four back, it's the same back line as uh, previous years. If they play a five, five back, it, it's still four or five players that have done so well for them. And, and with Menges back now, I think they're capable of being a good defensive team, and I think this could be a turning point. They have to go out and prove it, but given the personnel, given the performance, given Emily Menges uh, that she's back on the field, uh, I think it's a good sign. So my counterpoint to that, Chris, is that the Spirit came into last Saturday's game having scored seven goals in seven games. That's not not a lot of goals. Convincing attack, and I do think the Thorns Thorns defense made two big mistakes. 
they got torn open by Mallory Pugh in the first half, just gave her too much space, and then she was able to beat two or three individuals um, before taking a bad touch that went into Eggerstrom's arms. Uh, I think the Thorns basically, in other games, have given up goals under less dangerous circumstances, and we call those aberrations. And then at the end of the game, when they're projecting a one nothing lead, Andy Sullivan has an open header at the, six, at the edge of the six-yard box that could have tied the game. Those are the same levels of mistakes that we were seeing before. But I think there is a huge psychological effect from seeing those mistakes not break against them. And not every mistake that a defense makes ends up in, in a goal. So it's nice for them to see that their effort kind of finally produced a clean sheet. We heard from Megan Klingenberg today who evoked that same kind of spirit. So I don't think the defense was any like appreciably better than it's been for most of the season. It just got kind of the results that maybe it should have. So I don't know. Oh my God. I just wasted all my time. Yes. I do think it's a turning point psychologically. I just don't think it's a turning point in terms of the actual performance. Do you think it's it's fair to say that they've been unlucky? The, that even though they have made some relatively glaring mistakes, that they've been punished for them at a higher rate than they than you know you would expect in, in sort of the expected goal in the non technical sense uh, kind of way. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they've been punished. It seems like for every big error, every big turnover that they've had. Uh, this season I, I mean they have other errors I, I think when, when Richard's talking about the errors in this game um, they've had errors where they've given the opponents opportunities where they've given them shots and they haven't necessarily converted but when you talk about the very glaring turnover here turnover in front of goal that they've been punished at all of those and it's happened uh, a number of times more than it's happened more than usual and the other teams have taken advantage of those opportunities consistently I completely agree. I'm trying to think back now as to the times there was a major error, like, you know, Emily Sonnet trying to play a ball too quickly to Lindsey Horan, and then Chioma Ubogagu ends up not putting that goal. And I just can't think of that many moments that uh, ended up like that. Or Rumi Atsugi gets, shakes Mitch Purse and launches a shot from 23 yards and it doesn't find a corner. I just, I think the luck would have evened out on the defense. And maybe we, it started to even out come this weekend. But I just, even though the defense had made mistakes, I just thought that every single one of the most mistakes, like the Utah situation where Kelly Hubley gets caught by A-Rod or uh, Britt Eckerstrom um, is knocked in the hip and ends up losing a ball against Washington in, in the box. And instead of it being cleared, it ends up in the back of the net. Like, I just felt like all of those situations were going against the Thorns. And yeah, I mean, maybe some of those situations last year would have been solved by better defense. Like, you know, Catherine Reynolds slips on a in the six yard box against Chicago and they score a goal there. Maybe that's a balance issue. Maybe it's just random luck, but I, I do feel like that this all would have evened out in time. Yeah. You know, I mean, you just think about any soccer game that, that, that you ever watch is sort of when you have, uh, especially when you have a vested interest, it seems like there are almost always sort of, you know, one or two or three situations over the course of a game, even a, a well-defended game in which you kind of say, whew, they got away with one. Um, and, and yeah, I agree with you. The Thorns just haven't had very many of those. Who they got away with one uh, kinds of things there, and 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 maybe they they, they had a couple of those coming. Uh, but yeah, okay, good takes there, guys. Nice work. Uh, did the four two three one work? What do you think? Uh, the, the the going to the four at the back, as we saw mid game uh, against Orlando the week before, saw it full time now, but now with Kling at left back. Uh, and, and, and Mengus on it and Reynolds uh, filling out the rest of the back line. Although I think I messed up the order there. Did I can't, 
Anyway, nope. uh, I got it. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I couldn't even remember in which order I, I said it. But uh, anyway, uh, Kling, Reynolds, Sonnet, Mangus. Uh, what Perfect. did you think? Did that overall approach uh, work for the Thorns, and do you expect to see it going forward? Uh, for me, it's just the same thing. They thought it worked, and that's important right now. It's important when you have a five-game winless run to think things are improved. I think the numbers show that it wasn't so incredibly impressive. It wasn't bad either, but I think it's this is a psychological thing more than an actual results thing. Jamie, what did you think? Did you think they actually looked better than they have in other recent games? I, I still stand by it, that I think overall they were able to cut out the glaring defense errors. I, I don't think that really comes down to the formation. And so, yeah, I'm not sure that this is going to be the answer in, in terms of this formation is going to be what solves the problems throughout the year. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them go back to a five back at some point. But it, like you said, in terms of confidence, if this is working or if it feels like it's working and it's a way to put the four players that have been most consistent for this team on the back line, uh, and have that consistency and have that chemistry back there. I, I think it's an option that at this moment uh, in the season where they need results, that seems like a good idea. I also just think this team most naturally, when you when you look at the personnel, uh, just most naturally fits in a five back. Uh, e- even if this is sort of just a, a, sh- a short-term thing to, to stabilize things and in light of the personnel that's available. Look, I mean, if there's anything that we've learned over the course of the last, you know, first third of the season or so uh it's that Midge Purse is somebody who needs to play uh and that and she is better as a as a wingback than she is as a winger um and and, and frankly when Haley Rosso gets get, gets uh, healthy and and fit and when the thorns are sort of up to full strength in their attack Midge doesn't have a, a consistent spot in that attack and, and, and I think she's somebody uh, the, the Thorns have a great deal of interest in getting on the field and getting on the field in in sort of her, her best position. You know, I mean, I mean, I think you can say the same thing uh, about Kling. Kling is a better wingback than she is a, be- a fullback. Uh, and so when you look at the pieces that, if I were Mark Parsons, I would want to get on the field, I can get more of them on the field in, in positions that make sense for them uh, playing the five-back than I, than I can the four. Is that an unreasonable sort of uh, long-term take uh, on the personnel and, and the formation? Yeah, I don't think it is. Um, maybe that changes a little bit once Haley Rosso is healthy and Caitlin Ford comes back and you have a, enough versatility with that depth to play any way you want at that point. But I think one of the things that the Orlando game, the first 20 minutes of it showed, because they really, Orlando really loaded up in midfield. They brought, they essentially had two natural central defenders playing in midfield and they were able to muscle up against the Thorns. And once you get to the point where you're muscling, you're matching the physical power of Horan and Sinclair, then all of a sudden you have a Thorns midfield that doesn't actually have a natural holder, a natural defensive midfielder anymore. So one thing, one way to get around that is to actually put two players on each flank and start having more strength out there. So this might be a very similar situation to what we're talking about with the Thorns, once an, with the Timbers. Once an antidote is developed by the opposition, you have to have the flexibility to have another approach. And... You know, Mark Parsons talked about that today. He needs to be able to use both. And to that, to a certain extent, yeah, I mean, although they might have a team that best fits, particularly at full, the fullbacks positions, best fits a wingback approach, if teams are going to sacrifice some of their strength to load up in the middle to take advantage of the lack of multiple players on the wings, then all of a sudden you can go multiple players on the wings and um, not be exploited at fullback so easily. 
So Thorns versus Royals, that game is Friday at 7.30 p.m. Uh, in the friendly confines uh, of Providence Park. Uh, let's hit the injury report here. Jamie Goldberg, uh, you talked to Mark Parsons this week. What do we know about Bella Geist, A.D. French, and Haley Rosso and, and where they are in their various return-to-play protocols? Yeah, it's not going to be very specific. Uh, Mark said that it, they are all progressing, um, but at this point, he doesn't want to put a timeline on it. He he did say that maybe next week he'd have some more specifics. We did say see Haley Rosso running around the field today. She was still wearing a brace. Uh, Ad Franch um, was out on the field watching practice. Uh, so I, I think they are making progress, um, but. Uh, I, I think particularly after last year with the changing timelines with Tobin, uh, I, I think Mark wants to be careful before uh, putting out a timeline that might change. So uh, I, I think one of the narratives going into this game, and, and it is notable that, that the Thorns have lost two in a row at Providence Park. I'm going to give uh, our, our, our good friend and, 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 and our, my upgrade, uh, Richard Farley, credit for this. Uh, that's the first time that the Thorns have lost two in a row at Providence Park under Mark Parsons. Can they turn uh, the, the, the house on Morrison Street back into a fortress this week uh, against the Royals? Jamie, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, they definitely have the opportunity to do it. Utah is a team that's been very good defensively, but the Thorns should be able to get their attack going at home. This is a place that they've been dominant in the last few years, and it's a big reason why. That dominance is a big reason why they won the NWSL Shield and and then won the NWSL Championship. Uh, I think this is a game they really need to find a way in terms of when we're talking about confidence. They need to find a way to get back on track in this game because three losses in a row at home, even two losses in and a draw uh, would feel pretty concerning. So I I think that Utah is a team that has gotten better throughout the season. I I think they are very good defensively, uh, but the Thorns, if they can build in terms of the confidence off this last uh, defensive performance at Washington, I I think they should be able to find a way to get a goal um, or whatever they need. Um, I think they are capable of finding a way to get these three points at home and, and hopefully regaining that dominance and that confidence at Providence Park. Richard, do you think there's something about this team that makes them more vulnerable at home than we're used to seeing? No, I don't. I think there's something about this team that should make them stronger at home and that they, I think ultimately are a more talented and more experienced team than they were last year. Um, I think that based on, you know, seeing the game that they had at Rio Tinto stadium against Utah and recognizing that Utah has gotten some players back. They were also going to be missing a very prominent player in Kelly O'Hara, that this is a team that the Thorns should be, I don't want to say comfortably beating because people think that Utah is a bad team when you start saying stuff like that. But these are the games where the Thorns, as a title contender, should be expecting to get three points from and handle all of the problems that Utah is going to pose them. Yeah, I certainly agree that this is one where, I mean, look, I mean, if the Thorns want to make sort of a run back into a into try to get back into the top two, get that home playoff game ahead of having what would be a a home final if they can get there. They need to be they need to be able to go and get three points from games like this. The Orlando game was one of those games uh, and dropping those three points uh, as a result of a combination of some bad luck and just a really, really bad start, uh, I, I, I think was brutal. And that's not something that they can afford to repeat uh, 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 against the Royals. So, look, you know, I mean, I, I agree with you that there's nothing inherent about this team uh, that 
you know, makes me think that they shouldn't be able to to be able to turn Providence Park into a fortress. This is still a team that's got, you know, two players in the center of the park that are a, as good on the ball as any central midfield uh, in NWSL. Uh, that's got, you know, Christine freaking Sinclair, uh, the the sort of leading the charge in, in, in the attack. Tobin Heath now getting back into into form, a back line that has been very good in the past and should be as good uh, this year. I, I don't see any sort of obvious reason on the roster why they shouldn't be as good as they have been at Providence Park. But, you know, I mean, the last couple of performances have been what they've been, and the last couple of results have been what they've been. So uh, that is what it is. Okay. I think uh, I think this is where I pass to you guys. Yeah. I think before we get to predictions, I, we know we've already – it's already been a long podcast, but for those of uh, the listeners still with us, I, I, I want to ask you some questions, Chris. I, I think this is your last pod. I, I think – you should have to be in the hot seat a little bit. So um, we're gonna we're gonna throw some. This questions is profoundly uncomfortable, by the way. <laughs> it's very very uncomfortable. No, I love it. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll start. I'll, I'll start you off when, with an easy one. Uh, so okay. in your time covering the Timbers, I, what are what's your favorite memory or a couple favorite memories um, with your time playing uh, being the journalist on, on this side and covering the team? So this is easy, and and it's easy because I am at bottom a fan. Um, MLS Cup. I mean, I, like this is still something that I that I like have to think back and be like, is that like was that real? Did I really like get to do that? And and you know, I, I covered the game from a media perspective, and and hey, look, I, I upheld my professional obligations, etc. Um, more or less. Uh, but you know, I mean, it, it, you know, I I just think back about you know after the post game press conference with Caleb Porter and and, and Diego Valeri, uh, walking back into the locker room. And it's it's just like after my favorite team won a championship, I got to like, you know, hug and congratulate the coach, hug and congratulate the owner and go into the locker room while they're still like spraying beer uh, all, all over each other. I, that's that's like something that every fan dreams about being able to do. And it's, and it's just like totally completely unattainable. And so like that is the, the thing for me that is just like, the, are you kidding me? Like, I still can't believe that happened. So, yeah, that is by far my favorite memory. Uh, I have a hard time believing uh, that, you know, when I'm when I'm doing sort of my top five sports moments of all time, uh, I have a hard time believing that for the rest of my life there will be anything that tops that. Oof. Okay, Chris, it's my turn. And, uh, you know, I was obviously there firsthand for this, but a lot of people maybe don't realize that your time becoming an accredited uh, media member with the Timbers slash Thorns coincided almost perfectly with Caleb Porter's tenure in Portland, and it did not get off to a good start. <laughs> so I, I, I was hoping that you could talk about those initial uh, moments covering the team, but also the evolution of your relationship with Caleb Porter and how that affected your rela- your evolution of somebody who covers sports. So let me know if this surprises you. Uh, uh, Caleb Porter is an intense guy. It, is is that a shocking is, is is that a hot take? No. Um Caleb's a, a, an intense guy to be sure. Um he uh, you know and and whenever you have somebody with which by the way, you know, I I think he is among the more intense coaches, but I mean, that is a pretty type A group uh as, as groups of ind- individuals go and and I don't think he's unique in that in that respect uh, by any means. 
but you whenever you've you've got somebody that that ha- that brings sort of that level of of intensity to to uh you know a role like being the head coach of a of a soccer team that's going to get you know the kind of media coverage uh that they're going to get it does create instances and it, and it does create plenty of potential to butt heads and look, I, I did butt heads with, with with Caleb multiple times over uh, the course of uh, of our time working together, um, and and yeah, I mean the, that that's just sort of part of the business. The the the, the most uh, the most memorable one and the one that still gives me the biggest laugh it, it was that first one that I think you were referencing, Richard. When you know, I mean, we sort of butted heads uh, in his first uh, regular season press conference, my first regular season press conference as well. Um, and then afterward, he, he he called me a clown, which which is remains a point of pride for me uh, <laughs> <laughs> to, to, the, to this day. But you know, I mean, I, that aside, my relate I I regard my relationship with Caleb as being overwhelmingly positive, um, and, and and it certainly got even more so the you know as time went along. But look, I mean, the guy fundamentally just loves soccer deep down to his core. And even if he's gonna gonna butt heads with you at, at, at times, uh, with me he showed that that he always sort of like had that respect and appreciation of somebody that that was, you know, even if I'm not nearly as smart as Caleb when it comes to soccer, was interested and, and willing and curious and, and and wanted to talk about soccer on on you know a, a level that is is sort of deeper than than you you're gonna get sort of just at, at the superficial level that you get uh, a, a a lot of frankly, coverage in other markets from. Uh, I learned a lot. I learned a ton about soccer from Caleb Porter. Uh, I don't think I learned, I have learned more about the game from anybody else than from him. And I, I'm really grateful uh, for the time that he spent, uh, oftentimes, you know, off camera, off microphone, uh, willing to talk to me about a game, willing to talk to me uh, sort of about concepts, uh, about tactics and things like that. Uh, there were a lot of those moments in, in which he was pretty great. And so, yeah, we absolutely butted heads. Uh, and, and you know, I'm not one to have that much of a filter. Uh, and, and I think that created uh, more opportunities to butt heads. But, you know, I mean, those were the, those were sort of the, the exceptions to the rule. I, overall, I, I think our relationship was really good. Uh, I, you know, I mean, I... I, I was was and this is no disrespect to to Gio, who I think uh, is, is showing to be, himself to be quite a coach too. But I was sad to see Caleb go uh, because I, I enjoyed I enjoyed our, our relationship and I enjoyed working with him. So now that you're retiring, uh, are, are there any hot takes that you've kind of uh, suppressed and not wanting to say uh, that as someone covering the team that you just want to throw out there on your last pod? So uh, this is going to be like way down in the weeds. And, and part of this is because there were really no like big takes that I had that I was like, yes, I absolutely genuinely believe this, but I'm not going to say it because I don't want to offend X, Y, Z. Like I, I did not pull the string on, uh, on very many of those. And, and I'm proud of that. Um, but there is one that I've sort of always thought, and I've probably even verbalized it here and there uh, to people, but I've never really sort of fully said it. But I, you know, I was the, the referee pool reporter for the last, three years or whatever. And I think that whole process is, is, is just beyond stupid. I think it's ridiculous. I actually think we saw a good example of it, uh, in, uh, in, in Washington this last week with an NWSL <laughs> where somebody asked the referee, like, why didn't you give the thorns a penalty here? And the referee literally just answered, I didn't think 
you know, Andy Sullivan broke the laws of the game. It's just like, are you are you kidding me? Like that that's the most useless, stupid exchange ever. And and look, I mean, to to many extents, it, it, it to some extent, it, it kind of puts referee on the spot after games, which I don't feel that bad about because it's. I mean, if you don't want to be put on the spot after a game, don't go into sports. Um, you, there are lots of professions where you're not going to be put on the spot immediately after you do whatever professional exercise that you do. Uh, but but mostly, I don't think you get anything terribly productive out of it. Uh, and I, I think you, you end up doing a disservice to fans who want genuine answers. And, and, and referees miss an opportunity both to show accountability and just to educate, too. Because there are a lot of times where there may be an explanation. And they just don't give it. And so I, I think the referee pool reporter thing is is more often than not useless. Uh, and I think there's a much better way to go about it that would show the transparency, that would show accountability, and that would let people know that both, you know, referees are humans and they make mistakes, but that would also educate sort of the, the, the soccering public. Um, that's not something that I that I made a, a, a big deal out of because I was a referee pool reporter. Um but I, yeah, I, I would have very happily fired myself uh, if it meant we could have gotten rid of that whole system and replaced it with something that was going to be a little bit more uh, meaningful. Well, Chris, I think this is our last question. And I think I know the answer based on just the passion and the consideration that came through when you were explaining that part of what you did. But I think back to, you know, you've been working for years at Stumptown you were covering the game before that. You were covering the team before that, uh, accredited or not. You've been doing this a long time with very little financial reward, almost no financial reward. Uh, I, I lost a lot more money than, like, much, much more money doing this than, than, than I took. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, are you glad that you spent so much of your time, of your life doing this? Oh, hell Yeah. <laughs> Um, I mean, this was, this was more fun than I ever could have hoped. I, I, I started doing it because I, I was sort of just like, look, I, I started doing it in, I was in law school, I think when I started writing and, uh, yeah, I, I sort of just wanted an outlet to, to talk about soccer and to, to, to put words on a website. And, you know, uh, I, I, you know, it was sort of just, uh, just the way a lot of people come to, to things like this. It just kind of wanted an outlet to write about it. Uh, and that it turned into all of this, that I got to do so many cool things, including being a referee pool reporter. Uh, but, you know, I mean, go, go to MLS Cup and cover, cover MLS Cup. Get, you know, uh, do all the things that, that I've been able to do over the course of the last seven years. I mean, Mike, it was awesome. I, it, it was so much better uh, than, than I ever could have expected. And, and, and yes, you know, I mean, life priorities change. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and you get to the end, end of these runs and, and, and that happens for everybody and everything. Uh, and and I'm at that point uh, with this, but I mean, my goodness, I, this has been one of the most sort of like positive, fulfilling and fun things I've done in my life. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, you guys, uh, Richard and Jamie uh, have, have been a big part of making that happen. You guys, everybody listening uh, and everybody w- with whom uh, you know, we, we interact on a daily basis about this stuff, uh, have been a huge part in making that happen. Uh, and, and, and making it just so much fun to be able to talk about soccer and to be able to talk about soccer in in a much greater capacity than, uh, than I would have hoped. So, uh, it's been amazing. I'm, I am so glad I spent this much of my life, spent this, <laughs> this much of my money, uh, doing this. It, it, it has been rewarding multiple, multiple times over. 
Okay. Well, I'm, uh, glad, since, I'm glad to hear that, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh. Uh, since that's the end of your questions for me, it's time for you guys. And I just mean the two of you because I ain't coming back. Uh, well, that's not true. Uh, I, I will say, like, for the record here, uh, that I will carry on the tradition uh, of uh, of Jamie, your predecessor, Michael Orr, uh, of being available uh, to be sort of a co-host emeritus uh, in, in case you need coverage for, for a podcast someday. I, I can't guarantee y'all I'll have insightful things to say, but, I mean, heck, that basically is how it's been in the past too. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I am more than happy uh, to be available for that. Um, but yeah, and, and hey, actually, before we get to the predictions, I also want to thank the two of you for carrying this on. This is, so this podcast is, has existed in various iterations between Michael Orr himself, uh, Michael and, and, and Nevitz for a while, Michael and Kelly McLean, uh, Michael and me, uh, Jamie and me, uh, and now uh, Jane, the two of you, I think that's a really cool thing. Yeah, I, I think, I think so it's too. cool yeah. that this podcast has is, is sort of been passed down uh, through different people, through different generations, and has taken different forms, but has stayed basically this same, you know, the, the, the same medium and uh, in, in, in this in this show. And so, uh, you know, I mean, we all sort of stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. Uh, in, in building on, and I can't wait to see what you guys do. So I, I'm I'm really really happy, and I'm really grateful uh, that the two of you are sort of picking up the torch. Um, I, I just want to relay a story of from my first memory of the show, or my longest lasting memories when Michael and Kelly were still doing this, and it was during the preseason of Caleb Porter's first year, and Kelly was trying to prove a point as to uh, this myth of possession soccer that Porter was bringing in. They're not actually connecting that many passes, so. He went through a game and he counted how many passes that the Timbers connected in a row and proceeded to read off the numbers one by one. (laughs) So for a good 15 seconds of the podcast, all you heard was one, three, six, one, (laughs) one, two. (laughs) I remember immediately messaging Michael just saying, that is the worst, most amazing 15 seconds of podcast ever. one man sitting there just saying single-digit numbers over and over and over again. It Honestly, some of the things that I've said over the course of time, I think probably could have used some 15 seconds of just reading single-digit <laughs> numbers. Uh, but I have to say, one of the reasons I'm most excited to step into your um, huge, unfillable, gonna have to throw them away because there's no way I could actually wear them out in public shoes is They also the probably kind of stink. Is the legacy of the show, yeah. Um, and you're a walk to work kind of person, so I imagine that they they do. Um, <laughs> and if it, you know, my number one motivation for wanting to do the show is being able to talk an hour's worth of soccer with Jamie every day. My number two is the legacy of the show and having a connection with both you and Michael, who I obviously have personal connections with too. So I'm very excited about doing the show. How I am in no no state of mind to actually fill your shoes, but I'm. I'm interested to see what happens next week. And I guess next week is when we're going to have to, yeah. we're going to have to face what these predictions, <laughs> how bad these predictions go. Jamie, I guess you get to go first and we'll start with the thorns versus Royals on Friday. Yeah. Um, I am going to predict that the thorns are going to be able to get the, the get win uh, at home and break that streak. Uh, get back to that little bit of home dominance. Um, I'm going to predict a one zero thorns win. And you're criticizing Chris, so I am not comfortable saying this name, but I'm going to predict <laughs> that Cernogorsevich uh, is going to get the goal. 
I think he gave me an eight or nine out of ten, which like I would have taken throughout most of my academic <laughs> career. So I'm I, I I don't take that as criticism, Richard. Yeah, I think I think every week we can improve on one <laughs> syllable in Anna's name. So one of the first things that she taught us when she arrived, literally hours after she stepped up a plane, is the first s- syllable is actually more sirno. So imagine like you're saying the word seal and then put it like sirno. So sirno Gochevich. So if we just get sirno instead of cerno, that would be a that would be a good first step, not only for you but for our whole listening uh, audience. All right, okay, make your prediction now. <laughs> um, I am going to be a little bit more aggressive on this one. Uh, like I said, I saw the game in Utah between these two teams that ended 1-1. I thought the Thorns were the slightly better team there. They're returning home. They're a little better team now. I'm going 2 to nothing, and I'm saying Tobin Heath will have a goal and an assist going up against who will probably book Elby at right back for Utah, somebody that I think is very good, but not quite experienced enough or good enough to deal with the Tobin Heath. Let's go on to the next game Saturday at Dick Sporting Good Park in Commerce City, outside of Denver, Colorado. Timbers versus Rapids. You went first last time. I'll go first this time. I'll be the conservative one here. I have Timbers one to nothing. I think this is going to be a very ugly game. I think this is going to be slightly less entertaining than the Timbers trip to Avaya Stadium was a few weeks ago. I have no idea who's going to score the goal, so I will make a different prediction and try to be a little bold with it. I think Jeff Antonella is going to have at least three saves. That might not sound too remarkable for some people, but given how boring this game is, if Jeff Antonella makes more than one save, I think that we might have more excitement than we have the right any right to expect. What about you, Jamie? Um, I, I'm going to predict a little bit of a different game. I, I think the Timbers are on a roll, and I think they're going to find a way to to pretty soundly beat the Rapids. Uh, even though, um, like a, like we've said, this could be a trap game. But I'm going to predict a 2-0 Timbers win, uh, and Blanco is, is going to get a goal and an assist. Um, and I think that now that we've done our predictions, I, I think, Chris, uh, fantasy update, and I, I think you got to close out the podcast for one last time. Oh, thank you. Yes, I do have a fantasy update here. Uh, the top three, I, I think, is up cha- unchanged from uh, from last week. That is FC Pierdlorn in third with uh, 1,174 points. Uh, Rossing Klub Day, it's cut off uh, with 1,179 points. Uh, and then Beer City FC, uh, still in the top spot, and, and, and opened that up just a little bit more this week with 1,228. Uh, I kind of forgot to set my lineup again this last week, so I didn't do so hot. Uh, I've slipped down to 38th, but still can't go as low as Jamie Goldberg, who is in last place because she does not play. Um, okay. Well, I guess this is this is like my final, uh, you know, the, 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 the final goodbye, the, the good night and good luck uh, kind of thing. Um, well, thank you all. Uh, thank you for tuning in uh, over the course of my years here. Uh, thank you for tuning in this week. Uh, thank you all for your questions, uh, both uh, and, and for your interactions, both uh, throughout uh, my time here and this week as well. Uh, we are Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on OregonLive.com and Stumptown Footy. You can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, sitting just on the other side of the internet for me, uh, that's the Oregonian and OregonLive.com's Jamie B. Goldberg. Just on the other, other side of the internet from me, uh, that's Richard Farley, who you can find at Timbers.com and The Equalizer. I am Chris Reifer. I am retired. Uh, and, and so you can find me in, in, in the North End uh, for, the, for Timbers games and on kind of the, the, the Northwest End uh, for Thorns games. Anyhow, uh, thank you all for tuning in. Uh, enjoy the Thorns uh, face-off against the Royals uh, on Friday and the Timbers uh, visit to the Rapids on Saturday. Uh, Jamie and Richard... 
We'll be back next week to talk about all of that and more then. As always, until then, take care.